you know, they came off the plane wearing army fatigues, which was made in this huge story. They had no idea it was going to be this huge story, but it was, you know, it was just played up big time nationally. I don't think there's ever been a bowl game that had more attention drawn to it, you know, the week prior. Welcome, and thank you for joining us for this edition of the Fiesta Bowl Football Focus Podcast, where we visit with some of the top coaches, players, and industry leaders across college football. I'm Scott Lightman with the Fiesta Bowl, and we're visiting with Bruce Skinner, who started with the Fiesta Bowl in 1973 and served as the Fiesta Bowl's second executive director from 1980 to 1990, when he led the Fiesta Bowl through one of its greatest periods of growth— Bruce will share how the famous 1987 national championship between Penn State and Miami came to be, how title sponsorship and activation in the college football world began before it was commonplace like it is today, how team selections worked in the early days, and much more. Enjoy this conversation with Bruce Skinner on the early days of the Fiesta Bowl. So so you joined the the Bowl in, in what, 73 is what I remember? 73? And I was hired to be the PR director. And, <laughs> okay. That I had a PR background too, Scott. I was the assistant sports information director at the University of Washington. Then I uh, went to work for the PR department, the NCAA. Then I worked at, for the Houston Rockets. Worked for a newspaper for two years, and uh, then I came to the Fiesta Bowl in 1973. So. I mean, I don't know if you know what you know about the history of how the game got started, but ASU's president uh, was Dr. G. Homer Durham in 1970. Uh, And he, at ASU's football banquet, said, you know, we're not getting invited to bowl games regularly, so we should just, he just threw it off, threw it off the cuff and said, we should start our own bowl game. And Vern Boatner, who was the sports editor of the Arizona Republic then, you know, thought that was interesting. If the athletic director, in his words, the athletic director or Frank Cush would have said it, I probably wouldn't have wrote, wrote about it, but the president of the university said it. So he wrote a column. And that's when uh, people like Jack Stewart, you know, who owned the Camelback Inn, decided you know, let's get some community people together. And Bill Strover was very involved also. They said, you know, let's let's start our own bowl game. But in those days, the NCAA wasn't granting any new bowl games. You know, they had nine of them, and they thought that was plenty. But the, the bowl and the founders were able to make a case that you know, there were a number of Western Athletic Conference teams who were deserving to be in a bowl game that weren't getting invited because they were so far away they wouldn't bring fans. Mm-hmm. You know, most bowl games in those days were in the South, and, uh, you know, it was a long way from Arizona or some other Western Athletic Conference sites. It was a very interesting story. I, I, I think the most significant thing I can say about the startup is a lot of bowl games are started by people in a community, but they aren't necessarily the movers and shakers in town. The Fiesta Bowl was started by the movers and shakers in town who had a lot of vision. Not only did they want to start a bowl game, they they wanted to grow it. You know, and even back then had visions of staging a national championship game someday. We all talk about the ASU influence and the bowl is sort of, 
in part created for for ASU to have a bowl home. You know, okay. how would you describe that that the ASU tie-in? You know, in the early days. The issue tie-in was, you know, on the one hand, it was a great thing because they played in five out of the first seven games. Yeah. So you were guaranteed a sellout. And, uh, you know, for a startup bowl, attracting uh, fans, you know, just like today is yeah. for the smaller bowls, attracting fans is, you know, difficult. But because of that, we always had a sellout. Even in the two years we didn't have ASU, we still had sellouts because people didn't want to lose their tickets because <laughs> we're pretty sure ASU's not in the game this year, but they'll probably be in next year. That's funny. So that was the plus. The minus was nobody wanted to play them in their home stadium. So yeah. when I came in 1973, there were 10 bowl games and we were 10th, we had 10th pick. Because ASU was going to play in the game and, you know, most teams didn't want to come. If they had a choice, they didn't want to come and play ASU in their home stadium. Uh, Something you just said spurred two follow-up questions for me. Um, You know, one thing was you said it was hard to get teams to come and play at ASU if they had a choice because they didn't want to come and play another road game. Um, what kind of changed, you, you know, was there a significant moment that, that someone came to town and, and, and that sort of changed the trajectory of the, of where the Fiesta Bowl was able to go? I mean, maybe it was a, was it a Penn State's first appearance or something else? You know, I, it was a, an evolving process. I mean, first of all, the teams who came, Florida State, mm-hmm. you know, Missouri, you know, those early years, Oklahoma State, they really had a good time. You know, the Bulls always been good at hosting teams, and that started from day one. You know, everybody said, you know, that's our favorite bowl to go to because we have the best time. Uh, obviously, weather helped some, but there were a lot of people. I mean, the bowl just got very, very good at hosting teams, um, mm-hmm. and in particular, the official parties to the point where, you know, that's the bowl game we want to go to. Right. In in 1975, which was a very, very significant game for the Fiesta Bowl, but also for ASU, um, because ASU at that time, uh, you know, they were just one of those whack teams. Yeah, they had good players, but, and so they were one of those teams, we don't want to play them. We don't want to play them in the regular season, and let alone in a bowl game, because we have nothing to gain by playing them and all the lose. And, you know, they were producing a lot of NFL players back in those days. So it was difficult for ASU to move up the ladder any further than they had been. What changed all that in 1975 the teams, there was a bid day when you were supposed to announce your teams, but there was a lot of negotiations that occurred prior to that bid day. And a lot of decisions were reached before the bid day. And, you know, most bowl games invited two teams. There were not, there were very few conference tie-ups. Um, you know, the Big Ten and Pac-10, well, Big Ten and Pac-8 in those days went to the Rose Bowl and the Southwest Conference went to the Cotton. The Sugar Bowl had a tie-up with the Southeast Conference, and the Orange Bowl had a tie-up with the 
uh, big, what was then the Big Eight Conference. But that, those were the only bowl tie-ups. Every other bowl invited teams. So there was this fierce competition, uh, amongst the bowls in, in your level to attract teams. And that's, I think, main reason why the bowl was able to develop a reputation of being able to be a good host because we realized we didn't have a lot of money to pay teams, but we could give them the best time. But in 1975, when all these negotiations uh, were going on, uh, Nebraska and Oklahoma were ranked in the top five in the country. Nebraska and Oklahoma were left out, uh, the loser of the game. You know, just teams went for other sure bets for whatever reason. And so all of a sudden, we got a call from Chuck Ninas, who was the commissioner of the Big Eight in those days. And he said, I have Big Red in the north and I have Big Red in the south. And if I were you, I'd get on the horn to call to get mm-hmm. the runner up. Nice. And so we called Bob Devaney at Nebraska. And I think Wade Walker was the athletic director at Oklahoma. And we asked them, you know, if you lose the game, would you come to the Fiesta Bowl? And Oklahoma said yes. Uh, Nebraska, which I think might have been ranked number one in the country then, uh, said no. But we were willing to gamble, and we were willing to gamble because since there were only 10 bowl games or whatever the number was, there were a lot of good teams out there that weren't going anywhere, one being California, who had – uh, a great running back named Chuck Muncie and a great quarterback named Joe Roth. And uh, we knew we could get them if for some reason uh, we couldn't get the big eight runner up. As it turned out, uh, Oklahoma and Nebraska played. Oklahoma upset Nebraska, who I think might have been ranked number one in the country. And so Nebraska rescinded what they had, had told us earlier, and the players decided to come out and play ASU in the Fiesta Bowl. That really made ASU's program. It made the Fiesta Bowl because ASU upset Nebraska and ended up ranked number two in the country. So for a bowl of our size to have a team that was ranked number two in the country was very significant. And I think that led, you know, the next big thing was getting Penn State in 1977. Then we were really starting to get good teams and not paying a lot of money. So, you know, that Nebraska game was definitely a game that took the Fiesta Bowl to the next level. Uh, Penn State coming. I mean, I guess back then Arizona, had the Suns were still in their infancy. It was before any of the other pro teams. So it was really an early Suns organization. And then the Fiesta Bowl bringing in. Penn State from the East Coast and Nebraska, the big powerhouse from the Midwest. How would you say that the Fiesta Bowl maybe helped put the state of Arizona uh, on a national scale, whether it be in the sports world or even in the, the overall uh, aspect of, of the country's minds? I mean, I mean, it definitely did because, you know, these were national telecasts. They weren't, weren't regional telecasts. There were also, everybody got four channels, not 400 channels. <laughs> and so, you know, college football games had very high ratings back in those days. The country was watching them. The weather was great. You know, they saw people in shirt sleeves. Uh, 
you know, at that time, ASU had a good football stadium. I, I mean, I think it definitely led people to think Arizona deserves some more professional sports teams and so forth. So, when when you took over as executive director, and I think it was in 1980. Yeah. What was sort of your charge or your vision about the next chapter, the next steps for the Fiesta Bowl? In my first game, we had Penn State and Ohio State. And that was, you know, from a image standpoint, that was huge. It was the first time we'd had a Big Ten team in Ohio State. Uh, so that was huge to attract them. Obviously, Penn State had a great national reputation. I mean, in those days, the you know, it was Alabama, Penn State, uh, Michigan, Ohio State, uh, Nebraska, Texas, USC. Those were the big names. And we were able to get two of them. So that was, you know, that was a big step forward. I went to the NCAA convention that year. So that would have been in 1980, January of 1981. And... Up until that time, the Sugar and the Cotton Bowls had played in the morning on January 1. The Rose Bowl was in the afternoon by itself, and the Orange Bowl was at night by itself. And the hospitality room talk at the convention was the Sugar Bowl, well, they were telling people, we're going to move tonight. We're going to compete with the Orange Bowl because uh, ABC, which had the game at the time, you know, we can sell – uh, we could generate more advertising revenue at night than we can in the morning. So I remember flying back. I changed planes in Dallas, and I called Don Myers. Uh, Don had, you know, a tremendous amount to do with the growth of the ball. Very visionary. Always wanted to go to the next step. So I changed planes in Dallas, and I called Don, and I said, Don, the Sugar Bowl is thinking of going tonight. At night, I think we can move to New Year's and compete against the Cotton Bowl. And because we were independent and we could bring in the Penn States and the Ohio States and, and the Nebraska's, we could generate good television ratings. And so I said, you know, I think we can really compete with them. And Don readily agreed. Uh, so we put together a plan quickly because uh, the postseason football committee, which in those days determined uh, when games would play, uh, was meeting in April. So we made a presentation to them, and they turned us down and saying that nothing against you, Festival, but four games on New Year's is plenty. We uh, appealed it to the NCAA Council, and I knew, and Don certainly knew uh, as an attorney, that it probably was a violation of antitrust uh, regulations for the NCA to determine when bowl games were played. I mean, they they could come out and say, hey, perhaps that there's going to be four on New Year's, but they needed to open it up and bid it out if they were going to do that. So we appealed it to the NCA council. And so we went into the NCA council meeting and we're given this presentation of why we should be on New Year's. You know, the schools want us to be there. They love to come to the Fiesta Bowl. We have sunshine, you know, the usual stuff. But to close it off, Don said, and I'd be very remiss 
if I didn't mention that my favorite law professor at the University of Michigan, Marcus Plant, said that, uh, would agree with me that this would be a clear violation of antitrust regulations. <laughs> you could see Walter Byers had just raised up. And so we stepped out and the other bowl game, a New Year's Day games, which we didn't know were there and made a presentation why we shouldn't play. Then the, uh, a staff member from the NCA came out and said, we want to let you know that we have determined that the NCA not, cannot determine when bowl games will play, which in effect said we could play on New Year's. So, and NBC really wanted us to play on New Year's because, uh, they, they televised at that time, they televised the Rose Bowl and the Orange Bowl. So, you know, with us in the morning, they had a great lead into the other two games. In our first year, we had Penn State and USC. Uh, mm-hmm. had a, I, you can look it up, but I think it was a 19-2 rating. I mean, it was just a huge rating. We knew with that game that, therefore, we'd be on New Year's for a long time. Wow. And, and, it's, and you know, in those days, being on New Year's was a big deal. I mean, that was the day for college football for decades. That probably accelerated the growth of the Fiesta Bowl uh, as well. Then um, a, another significant game was that gets left out sometimes is 86, which was the year before Penn State, Miami. Um, we ended up with Michigan and Nebraska. And what was significant about that is Michigan came for a lot less money. So back in those days, the Cotton Bowl was paying $3 million a team and wanted Michigan. We were playing a million dollars per team and we wanted Michigan, but you know, we didn't think the Big Ten would give up $2 million. And perhaps the Big Ten didn't want to give up the $2 million, but Michigan said, uh, Bo Schembeck was the coach, he said, and Don Cannon was the athletic director, uh, who was a powerful figure in NCAA uh, athletics at that time. And Don Cannon and Bo Schembeck said, hey, we want to go to Phoenix. That's a lot better than going to Dallas. <laughs> um, so they came for a lot less money, and so that was a huge feather in our cap, too. And then they, you know, then 86 came around, and again, there were very few conference tie-ups. Uh, Penn State had played three times in the Fiesta Bowl, and they loved coming to the Fiesta Bowl. In topping that off, they were 3-0 and in the Fiesta Bowl. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, I mean, Joe Paterno loved the Fiesta Bowl. So in 1986, uh, Miami was ranked number one. You know, uh, because they lost the bowl game, they'll never be considered this, but arguably had the best talent of any college football team of all time. Uh, if you look at the number of NFL players who came off that team, it's, un- you know, it's unbelievable. So Miami was ranked number one and Penn State slowly through the season, uh, climbed to number two because people were losing ahead of them. Penn State had this great defense, but a very mediocre offense. You know, they were winning games 17 to 16, and they were barely just beating some pretty mediocre opponents. Uh, but they were undefeated. So, you know, at the end of the season, they rose to number two. And I was, you know, in those days, you were really recruited teams. Mm-hmm. So I was... You know, going after Penn State, 
and Don Myers was going after Miami, uh, you know, we regularly went to their games and I go to a week before midday, uh, I go to a Penn State game and Jim Tarman, who was the athletic director of Penn State said, Joe wants to see you. And whenever Joe wanted to see you the day before a game, you, you knew that it was going to be significant. And, uh, because that's what he always did. And, uh, so I, I remember we went to the uh, pizza parlor at three o'clock in the afternoon outside of State College, uh, because he didn't want to be seen, uh, because as you can imagine he's a major, was a major celebrity at State College, still is. Mm-hmm. Uh, but certainly was back then. And um, so we met in the back corner of this pizza parlor, Jim Tarman and Joe Paterno and myself. And Joe said, you know, we really want to play this game in the Fiesta Bowl. And we really want to go to Fiesta Bowl. But Miami being ranked number one is probably going to determine where the game's played. We thought Miami would go to the Citrus Bowl. Um because it's obviously a lot closer to Miami and Orlando. But there were a number of things that played to our favor in that the Orange Bowl did not want Miami to go to the Citrus Bowl because they didn't want another game in Florida to have a bigger game than they did. Also at that time, the Citrus Bowl was a very small stadium, did not have an adequate press box, to house the media that were going to come to this game. Um, so for a number of reasons, you know, Miami said, uh, you know, as it turned out, Miami said, uh, we want to play Penn State in the Fiesta Bowl. I, and I know Jimmy Johnson to this day regrets that. Uh, in fact, I think he probably wanted to play in the Citrus Bowl all along. But, it, you know, it was definitely a home game for Penn State because they had, you know, triple four times the number of fans in the stands, and that certainly wouldn't have happened at the Citrus Bowl. Miami would have had uh, more fans than Penn State. Wow, that's a, that's a great story on how that, that game came to be. I think a lot of people are very interested in, in, in the mechanics around that, given what the bowl uh, system was like back in, in the, the, the 80s and just – the hoopla around that game because it really was sort of the first almost manufactured national championship game yes. in yeah. college football. And, of course, we could bring it together because they were two independents. Right. Uh, and no other game could do that. We were concerned that uh, Miami might go to the Orange Bowl, you know, stay away from playing Penn State, who was number two, and just play just anybody so they could win it and win the national championship. Um, but to Miami's credit, you know, they, they wanted to play who was number two, especially the sixties and seventies. I mean, Bear Bryant was famous for picking the bowl game. If he was ranked number one, let's pick the bowl game that has the weakest opponent mm-hmm. as the weakest conference champion. And, uh, you know, we'll go, we'll go play there. But Miami, to its credit, uh, said we want to play against state number two. What was, what was it like on, uh, Kind of game week and game day here in Arizona for for that game between you know it was NBC and the fans and and then the way the game ultimately played out. Miami, you know, um, there was a Sports Illustrated 
Illustrated article that week. I'm sorry, that week, that season. Uh, you know, I'm paraphrasing, and obviously you can go back and look at it, but it basically said they had had, I want to say the number was like 37 incidences with with the law during the season. So they really had this bad reputation. And that just kind of carried through. They, You know, they came off the plane wearing Army fatigues, which was made in this huge story. They had no idea it was going to be this huge story, but it was. You know, it was just played up big time nationally. I don't think there's ever been a bowl game that had more attention drawn to it, you know, the week prior. There, there was a steak fryer. You know, we used to have a fiesta. We used to have a steak fryer for the two teams out of Rawhide. And Miami walked out of the steak fry. So that became a huge story. You know, there was just a lot of attention drawn to that game. Um, hey, Bruce, what was it like being in the event at the time when Miami walked out of the steak fry? Different stories have different accounts of yeah. premeditation or organic and how it all. But what was it like for you being being in the venue at the time when that happened? <laughs> at the time, I was I was going, oh, my God. <laughs> uh, you know, because as a bull, you're trying to make both teams happy. You know, you want to, you know, we had this reputation of giving great hospitality. So, you know, as part of your recruiting process, you want people to think that the Fiesta Bowl is the greatest place to be. And when Miami walked out of the, walked out of the sink cry, uh, I, I definitely wasn't happy. And I wasn't happy because, you know, you're trying to make Miami and Penn State, you're trying to make both teams happy. And definitely they weren't. It was a very, very interesting, very interesting time. Oh, then there was uh, another incident. So, and again, if if the teams weren't ranked one and two, this wouldn't have, wouldn't have been a big deal at all. But we had assigned the practice facility for the Arizona Outlaws which was the USFL football team as one of the practice facilities. And the other practice facility uh, was a high school. And so Miami took the USFL practice site, which was far superior to the high school practice site. And Penn State said, we want as good a practice site as Miami's getting. So I called ASU. Uh, can Penn State use your practice facility? And uh, the athletic director, Charles Harris, came back and said, you can use the practice facility, but you can't use our locker rooms. Well, a practice facility is worthless if you don't have a locker room. So we um, finally got ASU to let Penn State practice at ASU and to use the home team locker room so they'd have enough space in the stadium. But because of that, Miami got the visiting team locker room, uh, which was an inferior locker room. And Jimmy Johnson was very unhappy with that. So we had to get the carpet, the, the locker room carpeted and uh, did all sorts of things to try to make the visiting team locker room better. So th there was a lot of, there was a lot of storylines going on the week of the game. It sure sounds like it. 
those two years you mentioned the 86 game with Michigan, Nebraska, and then obviously the 87 game, uh, you know, you had brought on Sunkist as a corporate partner um, at that time, which was a first, uh, one of the many firsts that the Fiesta Bowl had, but the first corporate sponsorship uh, as yeah. a title sponsor. Yeah, um, the, uh, how did that come to be and, and why was that such a big deal? And, and, you know, were you, how far out on a limb were you going back then in terms of what was deemed acceptable from a corporate and sports, you know, tie-in? Well, we went, obviously we went out on a limb a lot because there were a lot of teams who could have stepped up to try to play on New Year's and a lot of bowl games. I mean, you know, we were the ones who decided to do it. Don Myers liked to go out on a limb. <laughs> and of course, and I did too. So, uh, because, you know, we, we really want to get to the point where we staged the national championship. And in 1984, we sat down and, you know, we're paying a million dollars per team and the cotton sugar and the orange bowls, which were our, our competition because of the Rose Bowl was fixed. They were our competition to get teams. They were paying $3 million a team. So we, we needed another $4 million to really be able to step up and compete with them and therefore have the possibility of staging a national championship game. I had worked the Olympics in Los Angeles in 1984, and that event was very significant to what athletics are today. Because prior to those 84 Olympics, uh, corporate sponsorship was automobile racing, golf, and tennis, for whatever reason. And, you know, you kind of felt the rest of the sporting world kind of felt like, you know, we're going to, we're going to dirty ourselves if we add a corporate name to our title. Uh, so nobody did it. And I worked those Olympic games and as a volunteer and I saw how corporate sponsorship was received. Public didn't care, which was significant. And the Los Angeles Olympic Organizing Committee made a lot of money selling sponsorship. So that's when I again came back and uh, there were some board members who were leery of doing it, uh, just because, you know, you don't want to dirty our title up. Uh, the Fiesta Bowl is a strong name. Why would we want to bring a corporate name into that? Now, of course, now, you, as you know, everybody does it, but that wasn't the case back then. So we were the first sporting entity outside of, you know, automobile, tennis, and golf to have a title sponsor. And we really wanted to, you know, we wanted to have a title sponsor. We knew it was going to be controversial. So we kind of wanted to get a clean name. And, you know, what cleaner name is is there than Sunkiss? I mean, they grow oranges and lemons and grapefruits. And they had always uh, put on a pregame brunch uh, for the players called the Sunkiss Brunch, which is for the players and official parties at the Arizona Bill Barn. So that was one of the events we did for the teams. So we knew Sunkiss really well. Didn't think that they would be interested in becoming a title sponsor because in those days, you know, the, the demographic, and still probably is, the demographic for people who buy oranges in grocery stores is female. And the demographic of football audiences are male. Um, you know, target audiences for each, I should say. 
So because of that, we didn't think that, you know, Suncast would be interested in being the title sponsor. But when we met with them, we found out they wanted to do something different. They just didn't want to be another Sunkissed tennis tournament or Sunkissed uh, on a race car or Sunkissed golf tournament, uh, because there were a lot of those, meaning corporate titled golf tournaments. And so they, um, they told us we want to do something different. And secondly, you probably don't know this, but our real target audience is the buyers in grocery stores. And they happen to be male at that time. So they are the ones who determine what oranges are going to be in a grocery store and therefore what oranges those female consumers are going to purchase. So our real target audience are, is the buyers that are in grocery stores. So they were way ahead of their time. Not only did they add the name to Sunkiss Fiesta Bowl, make it Sunkiss Fiesta Bowl, but they um, they invited in over 400 of these buyers. Uh, there were a lot more grocery store chains in those days. There were, you know, there weren't the National Kroger, uh, Safeway chains, uh, like there are today. Uh, and in the second year, of course, we had Penn State Miami, uh, which they say is still the most watched college football game of all time. Um, uh, and they had, you know, these buyers all had 50 yard line seats and this huge game. Uh, and after, you know, after the game, the sun-kissed orange sales went up considerably. So it was, you know, a very, very successful partnership. And because of that sponsor money, uh, we were able to therefore start staging games where we can compete with the sugar, cotton, and orange bowls to attract teams. And, you know, over a five-year period, my last five years there, um, you know, we had Michigan, Nebraska. Michigan ended up number two in the country. Uh, we had Penn State, Miami. Uh, after the game, Penn State was ranked number one and Miami number two. Uh, then we had Florida, Florida State, Nebraska. Florida State won the game, ended up ranked number two. The next year we had, uh, Notre Dame, West Virginia. Notre Dame ended up being the national champion. And then the next year, we had Florida State, Nebraska again, and Florida State ended up ranked number two. So, you know, we had some huge games, you know, during a five-year period. And, it, you know, without Sunkiss money, that wouldn't happen. That's awesome. Um, that, that's, a, that's a great story to share. Um, when Sunkiss was saying they wanted something different than the, the tennis tournaments and whatnot, did, other than the opportunity for their, their buyers to, to be there in person, were there any specific things that they shared or any activations that the Fiesta Bowl did um, before they were called activations that, that really? Yeah, you know, the word activation didn't exist in those days. But they did a lot of activation, and we did a lot working with them. You know, I think we and they were way ahead of their time. Uh, bringing in the buyers was a significant uh, activation piece. And paying for them was a significant activation piece. Uh, they put them up at the Arizona Biltmore. In the Arizona Biltmore ballroom, they they built a mini stadium, actually put in bleachers and uh, put up a big screen. So throughout 
you know, there were a lot of bowl games going on, a lot of NFL games. So uh, during the week, they could come in and watch any game they wanted. And we created this stadium atmosphere in that we had concessions that were like in a stadium. And, you know, in those days, it was hot dogs and popcorn and, uh, you know, those types of things. So we created this stadium atmosphere. Um, you know, it, it just really, you know, wind and dined them. And one thing we did, and it, we were one of the first events to do this, we decided, you know, we want to give Sunkiss, obviously, as much exposure as possible in Arizona. And the thing about Sunkiss, they are a co-op of growers of Arizona and California oranges only. Mm-hmm. Uh, citrus, I should say. Uh, so making a big deal in Arizona was very, very important to them. Uh, we also got the Fiesta Bowl Parade telecast on NBC Live. And, you know, that was their demo- target audience, uh, the Parade telecast. And, uh, you know, one thing I really remember is we ordered banners, uh, street pole banners, to go on the parade route on Central Avenue and around the stadium and downtown Tempe around the football stadium. You know, and that was kind of a first that was kind of unheard of in those days and of nationally. And we had some left over and we're going, you know, where should we put these? And we came up with the idea, let's put them at the airport. So we put them at the airport. Now, I remember I picked up Dave Bernstein, who was the vice president of marketing for SunKiss and Russ Hanlon who was the president of Sunkist and uh, we're driving out of the airport and there was all these banners that said Sunkist Fiesta Bowl. And Dave Bernstein said, uh, I feel like I own this town <laughs> or I feel like we own this town, meaning Sunkist. Yep. And, you know, that just made a huge impact on it. So, yeah, just there was a lot of activation going on and during an era when that just didn't happen for a long time. That's a great story. Thank you. What about the com- the community impact? That that is something that we certainly hang our hat on today at the Fiesta Bowl, and and something that was in the original charter, from what I understand from from Mr. Shover, was you know, do sports, not drugs. How how big it, on your mind and in your direction of the bowl was the community impact uh, back in the earlier days? I I mean it was a huge impact because. You know, except for ASU and the Suns, there there wasn't a major sports presence. So being able to stage a football game with national uh, relevance uh, makes a huge impact just because there's a lot more television sets turned on to football than any other sport. You know, it's true today, and it certainly was true back then also. Right. You know, Arizona, I think, in – uh, especially in the 70s, early 80s, was a small town that wanted to be a big city. And how did, how did you guys help that evolution or, uh, or, or make more of a, a, big, a big city come to life? You know, we staged the most watched game of all time. And, I mean, it was just a huge event that – not only captured the town, you know, in certain sections of the country, it captured the country. A lot of millions of television sets were watching it. So, and, you know, put Arizona on the map, helped to put Arizona on the map. 
that's for sure. Uh, the Fiesta Bowl definitely put ASU on the map. You know, Frank Cush used to say that often. Um, uh, from a, a football standpoint, but also as an institution standpoint. So, I mean, I, I think that's why they got into the, you know, what was then the Pac-8 conference that became the Pac-10 at the time. Well, Bruce, you, you answered geez, a lot of questions that I had and, and gave some valuable insight to me for today and, and as we move forward. So thank you. Thank you very much. You bet. And, you know, if you have any other questions, let me know. Uh, when I finally make my next trip to Arizona, hopefully that's sooner than later, uh, I'll definitely let you know.